Well, we're picking back up this morning with the book of Acts. Uh, we are in the middle of the long and glorious and really consequential second chapter of the book. We left a few weeks back. We left Peter standing in the midst of the crowd on the day of Pentecost and preaching. Christian preaching, we saw, begins with the end. He cites the prophet Joel. And he tells us that the coming of the Spirit is a sign of the last days. And it means that the coming day, the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, what he calls the great and magnificent day, before which whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that day has also broken in upon us. So Peter starts this way. This is the Messianic age, he says. You live in the Messianic age, right? The, the age foreseen by the prophets. The time where eternal life is now being poured out profusely on all the saints, he says, male and female, young and old. So he continues this sermon, this Pentecost Day sermon today. It's all the same sermon. The same original public preaching event, right? The first Christian sermon. So having begun with the experience of the Spirit, he moves today to to look at the work of the Father in the Son. And so what we have before us in this short text is the first glimpse of how the earliest church, the apostles, presented the core of the gospel. At the core gospel events, the gospel, if you will, narrowly defined, that's what we have in front of us today. And so we'll make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Life, death, resurrection. Life, death, resurrection. And while we're referring, of course, to Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we will see that the central actor in the text is God the Father. So first, then, the life. Verse 22 begins with men of Israel. It's a general designation. It includes women. It includes the whole crowd he's addressing. It's important, though, to remember that we have the Jewish Apostle Peter addressing the assembled Jewish people, right? right? Who, who he called back in verse 4, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So he begins, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. This is the first mention of Jesus in Christian public preaching. Jesus of Nazareth, he starts with a known person from a known, if small and insignificant, place. Jesus of Nazareth, that inconsequential town. He points back then to the humanity of this Jesus. Notice he says, a man, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, Attested to you by God. So he's saying, God the Father attested to this man. And and by attested, he's using a word that has these solemn legal overtones. It means that God not only sent Jesus, which he blessedly did, but he accredited him. You know how a school might seek accreditation from some authoritative body. Accreditation means the school's legitimate. It's authentic. It meets the highest highest standards. The Father, Peter says, 
publicly gave his accrediting seal, his stamp of approval to the son. He sent him forth and he attested to him. He bore legal witness. God puts his own credibility on the line and testifies on behalf of Jesus of Nazareth. Again, the father doesn't merely send the son. He accredits the son. He seals the son. So let's, let's note briefly three things about this accrediting. When, when it was done, how it was done, and to whom it was done. Like when, how, and to whom. So first, when, when was it done? Well, it was done in the public ministry. In the life of our Lord before the cross. In his life. That's why we have three points today. Life, death, resurrection. Here we're discussing Jesus' life. We know that this is when this happened. From the second thing we can say about this attestation, which was how was it done? So in Jesus' public life, the father attests. How did he do it? Well, it says, Peter says, he, attested, he was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. God was sealing or attesting Jesus through the miraculous power at work in his earthly ministry. Right? There's no embarrassment about this here. Miracles were done, right? a plethora of miracles. Everybody knows it. And it was God's way of, of authenticating the Son. The healings and the exorcisms and the raising of the dead, the supernatural power. In fact, notice in the text, God is the one seen as the actor here. He does these things through Jesus. So these three things, mighty works, wonders and signs, and uh, mighty works, wonders, and signs, the three things, they're, they're, they're distinct, but they bleed into each other almost to the point of being synonyms. Like where you have one, you have the other two. Mighty works show you the divine power. Wonders create astonishment, amazement, and signs point, they convey the truth of God. They point to the kingdom or the new creation that has arrived in Jesus. We will see this throughout the book of Acts. That when miracles are done, it's not just because God is taking pity on the particular individual in view. He is doing that, of course. But the miracle is a sign of the coming restoration of all things. Right? It's a sign that the kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus himself said this, right? He said, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So there's an inbreaking of the kingdom that these signs attest to. And by the way, it was pretty well known. Even Josephus, right? Josephus is a first century uh, Jewish historian. He records that Jesus was a doer of, quote, strange and remarkable deeds. And this, the, the term, when you have wonders and signs together, they're always used together in the Bible, and they're associated primarily with the events around the Exodus. So their use here strongly hints that Jesus is the bringer of a new and mighty divine act of redemption, a new Exodus from the powers, the hostile powers. 
Now, of course, we live in a skeptical age when it comes to supernatural signs and wonders. We live in a gullible age in many ways, but when it comes to this kind of a thing, we live in a skeptical age. And there are a lot of things we might say to defend the reasonableness of believing this account. But I want to do something even simpler. We know that Luke is what we would call a secondhand witness. Like he tells us in the opening of his gospel that there were many eyewitnesses' accounts written about what Jesus did and that these accounts were accessible to Luke and that he investigated these firsthand eyewitness accounts and he wrote his own orderly account. So can we trust this account? Yes, most definitely. I mean, Luke is not far removed in time. This is a second-hand account. Luke heard from eyewitnesses. Which eyewitnesses? Well, perhaps Paul, who we know he knew personally. Most scholars think Luke had to interview Mary to have the information he has about the early chapters in his gospel. He spoke to them, and he's telling us what he told them. Right? So you should have confidence that these signs and wonders took place. The word of God tells you, but the witness, Luke as a witness, is a credible, very close to the event witness. You have the same pattern with the author of the book of Hebrews. He says this there. He says, salvation was first declared by the Lord, and it was attested, notice that word, it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying the same thing. In other words, I heard of the gospel and I heard of the miracles that attended the gospel from eyewitnesses. And now I write just like Luke. So we know when God attested. He attested in the life of Jesus. And we know how he attested. Signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Third, then, is to whom did he attest? Verse 22, Jesus is a man attested to you by God. Right? The you here is men of Israel. God did these things, the text says, through him in your midst. So Peter will put it this way a little bit later in Acts. He'll say this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Even the Gentiles living in the region, Peter says later, know what happened. So these things are not done in a corner. Peter's making a public claim in the midst of Israel to the people of Israel. And they know what he's talking about. Listen to the text. God did this through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Like So when you make a claim to an audience, that's not necessarily a friendly audience. And you tell that audience, as you yourselves know, you're sure about that claim. No one can plead ignorance about this attestation of God the Father to Jesus of Nazareth throughout the course of his ministry. 
That's his life. That's the life of Christ. The second point is the death. So this Jesus, the text continues, verse 23, was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Again, it is God who delivered Jesus over to death. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son. That's an echo, by the way, of the Abraham-Isaac story in Genesis 22, where Abraham spares his son. But God the Father does not spare his son. He who did not do what Abraham did, he who did not get a last second reprieve, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, How will he not with him graciously give us all things? Jesus' death did not cause God to love you. Jesus' death is the sign that God already loved you infinitely. He already did. It's the proof of the love of God. He was delivered up by the Father's set purpose. According, the text says, to this definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? The definite plan here means predetermined, set, rooted in the decree of God from all eternity, for Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Right? This eternal decree of God is behind Luke often in the gospel saying, or in the book of Acts saying, it was necessary, it is necessary, it was necessary. It's the language our Lord himself uses. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter his glory. Everything written about me in Moses and the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. History is driven by a kind of necessity rooted in the decree of God. This plan, this predetermined plan was announced by the prophets. Peter will later tell us what God had foretold by the mouth of his prophets, he has now fulfilled. So if there's any doubt about God's plan, which is sovereign, which is free, which is unthwartable, here's how the disciples talk about it in chapter 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now, here's the part. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's how the apostolic church prayed. This definite, predetermined plan is coupled here with God's foreknowledge, which is not, in God, a bare knowledge of the future, God foreknows precisely because God foreordains, because he has an eternal, definite plan. I think the the best way to think about this is knowledge here is essentially the same as electing love. So, for example, God says to Israel in the book of Amos, You alone I have known of all the nations of the earth. Well, that doesn't mean he's ignorant of the other nations or they're the only nation he knows about. It means they are the nation on which he has set his electing love. Thus, foreknowledge is to choose or to love beforehand from all eternity. If you look in Romans 11, for example, you'll see that the people whom God foreknew, 
Just are the remnant he has chosen by grace. So one last example on foreknowledge. Christ himself is said in 1 Peter 1 to be foreknown before the foundation of the world. Again, the meaning there is clearly chosen for his messianic task. So thus it was God the Father, in accordance with his eternal plan, his electing purposes, who delivered Jesus up. And Luke uses the same word for delivered here that he uses when Judas betrays Jesus and delivers him up. In Judas' deliverance, God the Father was delivering the Son over. And so this is, turns out to be a statement of God's absolute sovereignty. Right, of his decree, which is behind history's greatest evil. Right, behind the crucifixion of Jesus, his Son. He is the ultimate cause of the cross. And, and now in no way, no way does this make God the author of evil. Remember when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery? Later Joseph tells him, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So it is here. God, for his untainted good purposes, delivers his son up. And this in no way removes or competes with or diminishes human agency, human guilt, or human responsibility. Now here's where we have trouble. If we want to know how can both these things be true, at least the Reformed answer is we have no idea. The answer is we think the Bible plainly teaches both things. And God is God. He's a being of a different order than us. He causes things in different ways than we cause them. And so we're just happy to let the mystery sit there. Jesus says this, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So the one delivered up according to God's plan You, and the you is plural here, you all, Peter says, referring to the men of Israel, you crucified. Think how provocative this is. You're pointing your finger at the crowd, and you're saying you, the chosen people, the keepers of the law, the recipients and benefits of the covenant, you crucified the Son of God, and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. Yes, there were Gentiles involved including the Roman authorities. But the you here, in you crucified and killed, refers to Israel. They are the people in whose midst God attested to Jesus by mighty works and signs and wonders. Right? But there were no signs and wonders done by Jesus in Europe. They were done here, in this land, before this people. They themselves know God's attestation, Peter says, and they themselves killed that one by the hands of lawless men. Yes, it's a generalization. Some are much more complicit and guilty than others. But you can't speak or preach without generalizations. Generally speaking, you... Peter says to this crowd, the men of Israel, especially those in Judah, 
Judea and Jerusalem, you killed him by nailing him to a tree. Now, let me make an important qualifier here. It shouldn't be necessary. But there is a tragic history of Christian anti-Semitism which makes it necessary. This is not a blanket statement condemning all Jews for the death of Christ. If you think that's obvious to you, I can trust you. It hasn't been obvious in every generation of the church. It's a generalization, but it's a generalization about Jews of that generation. (laughs) And that generation only. And of those who live in the land who were complicit in the death of Christ. Later in Acts 13, Paul will narrow it down with more precision. Paul says this. Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, fulfilled them by condemning him. So there you see it's those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers. In fact, in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, after the healing of the lame man, Peter will preach, and he will say, you killed the author of life. Right? So the sharp edge is never blunted. You killed him. And then immediately he says this, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Whatever ignorance does here for one's guilt, and it doesn't remove it, It's still an important qualifier. So to apply this sort of language or to carry this sort of you killed him sentiment forward into subsequent generations of Jews is deeply unjust. And it has had grave consequences. Anyone who's touching these texts realizes you are touching stuff which can set whole towns on fire if you don't handle it properly. Right? You are touching stuff that can get people killed when you preach the gospel. And besides the nuance and the context that the book of Acts itself gives us, this kind of attitude overlooks two crucial things. First, this very text says that God, the Father, without sin, of course, is the ultimate cause of delivering Jesus up. It was the Lord's will to crush him. And second, we know that he did that on account of our sin and our wickedness. So if we want to blame someone for the crucifixion, you just need a mirror for that. God attested Jesus' life. He publicly sealed it. And then God delivered him up according to his plan And finally, third, God raised him up. Verse 24. This is perhaps the central theme, right? The repeated refrain, the triumphant and joyful strain which arises throughout the book of Acts. God raised him up. Again, Jesus is seen as passive here. The action in this text is the Father's. In this very sermon, Peter will declare it again. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. When he heals the lame man in the temple, he says, I did it in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised up. Acts 5, Acts 10, there are many examples. 
They proclaim the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Paul's sermon, which I already alluded to, in, uh, it's in Antioch in Acts 13, mentions the resurrection four times. So the examples are abundant. This should come as no surprise for us, right? We've already seen that the apostles are uniquely set apart and called as witnesses. Once for all, foundational, appointed by Christ directly, witnesses to the resurrection. We witness to the resurrection as well, but not like they witnessed to the resurrection. So the text continues, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. It's an interesting image. It's as if death itself was having birth pangs, trying to hold back the birth of Christ from the grave. Like death was in anguish, trying to hold him back. The abyss could not hold Christ back. Even as a pregnant woman cannot hold back her child's birth. So he was loosed from these pangs, from the agony of death. And since the resurrection is the beginning of a new creation, the first fruits of the general resurrection of the dead, it guarantees that on the last day, when death is destroyed, the whole creation, which we're told is groaning in labor pains until now, will be liberated from its futility. And your bodies will be redeemed. Christ has conquered death. This is the decisive form of the Father's attestation, of the Father's overturning the judgments against Jesus by the Sanhedrin and by the Romans and ultimately by our own sin. It's his public vindication against his enemies and against the powers. Death no longer, Paul says, has dominion over him. Indeed, our text says it was not possible, notice that language, for him to be held by it. Sometimes people say, you know, moderns, it's, it's, it's impossible for me to believe in the resurrection of the dead. To which I think one answer would be, well, if you knew who Christ was, it would be impossible not to believe it. Right? Paul says it was not possible for him to remain dead. There's no universe in which Christ can remain dead. Why? He's the living God. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. He's the author of life. He is life itself. And his passion and his resurrection are rooted in the eternal, invincible plan of God. Thus, it was not possible. It was not morally possible. It's not logically possible. It's not metaphysically possible. It is not possible for him to be held by death. And thus he declares to you, he declares to the church, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the gospel. He has abolished death. And he's brought life and immortality to light. As I said last week, Christianity, the Christian gospel, is not chewing around the edges of the human predicament. It is about the swallowing up of death forever. This is the beginning. The first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. This is the hope of Israel. And it's your hope. 
and it's your salvation. Right? This is the source of the Easter gladness that the church has, the, the source of our unquenchable joy. He who was delivered up for our sins, Paul says, was raised for our justification. Jesus was raised for you. Not only did he die for you, he was raised for you, for your acquittal, for your vindication, for the legal verdict of not guilty to be pronounced on your head now and at the last day. It's as if you've already stood before God on the last day. And he has said, not guilty. Not only has he said not guilty, he said just, righteous. Like that justification guarantees that you too will be loosed from the pangs of death. Right? On that great day, it will not be possible for it to hold you who are united to this Christ. So glory be to God, the great actor of our text. He attests, he delivers over, and he raises up Jesus for you and your salvation. Amen.